Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management. The only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Welcome back to another episode of Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, otherwise known as FPOG. This week on the podcast, we're talking about mistakes when hiring an advisor. We're going to talk about why an advisor who answers your questions isn't enough, who is at the center of the financial plan, and conversely, what builds a successful and enduring advisory relationship. But really important, before we start, it should be noted for people who are just listening and not watching on YouTube, Justin is wearing a sweater in Texas. Justin, how, how cold is it's it? It's a big moment. How cold is it there? You know, every year in Texas, September, October, it is so hard. The uh, rest of the world is experiencing cooler temps and we are not. But today, and I, I should say, let's see, last night and two or three days ago, it dipped into the low 40s, which was just so, so nice. Uh, and growing up in Kansas, it's you just meet this time of year with a little bit of uh, you know worry and concern and you're thinking, oh my goodness, here we go again. Because you get to you get to March and April in Kansas and you're thinking, we, we did it. We beat winter. Winter's never going to come back again. We won. And then every year it comes back. But uh, in Texas, it's a little bit of the opposite, as we know. You start to get excited when it gets cooler and you, you get to you get to wear a little bit more warm clothes. Yeah, well, I, I'm surprised because, you know, if you live in South Texas, your tolerance for the cold is typically lower. So I wasn't expecting temps that low, but uh, that's surprising because it's close to what we're having up here in Arkansas. But OK, back to regularly scheduled programming. So First thing we're going to talk about, why an advisor who just merely answers your questions isn't enough. And this point, you know, we're going to call proactive versus reactive. And so one of the big problems with this, when you, when you go to an advisor, you you have things that are top of mind. You have a pain point you want to deal with, an opportunity to be optimized, something related to your financial situation that is suboptimal. And you go to the go to an advisor to get help with said pain point. And that's great. And hopefully they could answer that. But merely answering your questions is is just one component. You don't have any financial expertise professionally or through, you know, education curriculum or anything like that. So your ceiling, your your human capital has been allocated to a different industry, which is great. And spending your time on that profession is the best way to compound your human capital. But there's a ceiling of knowledge to what you know. So a good advisor should not merely answer your questions, but they should help you ask questions you haven't thought to ask or help you think about things in ways you haven't thought to think about them. But it's not wrong if an advisor answers your questions. I would just say that it's incomplete. Justin, what would you add to that? And how, how, how do you think it'd be helpful to, for people? And what are some examples of kind of this proactive versus this reactive idea? So proactive versus reactive, I think this is a really good first uh, first point to hit on. When you're evaluating different advisors, there should be some tangible reasons to believe that the advisor you're going to work with will produce far more value than the fee that they charge. 
And, uh, you know, it, it all comes down to that. Uh, cost is what you pay. Value is what you get. And a big part of receiving massive value as a client is, did you call an advisor and ask them questions and did they respond? Well, that's, that's a really elementary level of service. Uh, the next step is, did that advisor bring up ideas, strategies, and a game plan that you hadn't even thought of? Uh, things that if the advisor weren't in the picture, those ideas and strategies that optimize your investments, maximize retirement income and lower future taxes, those should be apparent and those those should be present. They, they should be there. If there's not ideas and strategies that you couldn't have thought of on your own, uh, you know, you certainly have to begin to ask, why exactly are, are we doing this? And so I, I think uh, that is kind of the critical question. What, what type of value is really being created here above and beyond what you could do on your own? Yeah, that's a great point. And, so, and I would say, you know, for a busy professional or for someone who just wants the, the mind share, there is a value to delegating something you would do yourself, but it's just not worth as much as somebody presenting an idea or creating a strategy that you wouldn't have on your own, right? So it's not a bad thing to just delegate that work, but- the value should be lesser because it's not, you know, it's something you could do on your own. You're just paying for the time savings, which is valuable. Just, you know, should be the price you're paying for that should be adjusted accordingly. I think you could almost think about it. The value proposition that Wall Street has put out there has historically changed um, and it's changed pretty significantly. So I think that the first value proposition of Wall Street, and this is, I mean, 20, 30, 40 years ago, was simply access to the stock market, right? Uh, If you wanted to invest in something 30 years ago, you called a broker. And uh, a broker was a fitting term because you needed a broker to access that market. And so that was the value proposition 30 years ago. Then the value proposition started to mature a little bit. It started to expand. And not only did a broker get you in the market, but typically a financial advisor, maybe this is around 1995 to 2005, uh, the value proposition was a financial advisor would properly manage your assets. And so if you have a bucket of money that needs to be managed, it, I mean, it is critical. The difference between poor management and, and proper management is tremendously large over a 10, 20, 30 year period. So that is a, that's a real value proposition. And I don't want to diminish that entirely, but that was 20 years ago. That was really the value. And then this thing called financial planning started becoming mainstream. Now you might be thinking, well, wasn't it always there to some degree? quick just history note that's it's pretty interesting the cfp board certified financial planner it's really become the uh, necessary requirement to be a professional in this space uh, is to get your cfp marks the cfp board i want to say the first cfp jared was that in the 1980s and so before that there was no cfp distinction and then uh, it really wasn't mainstream i want to say they didn't have 10,000 members until somewhere around 2000 And so it wasn't until this point about 15, 20 years ago where financial planning started to be a little bit more of an added value proposition. And I don't want to diminish that, but I do want to make a quick point that when you're evaluating advisors, financial planning can mean a lot of different things. I think the most common definition is you might work with an advisor or an investment firm. And if you're interviewing a bunch of investment firms, they might want to see what are your assets? What's your social security? When are you looking to retire? And they might produce a book for you or a little binder. 
And that binder is going to be labeled the financial plan. And it's going to essentially be a cash flow analysis from age 65 to age 95. And it's going to answer the question, are you able to retire? What type of income can you expect over the years from your assets? And that was really the beginning and end of financial planning, which is essentially just, do I have the cash flow to retire? And, you know, I don't want to diminish that because, you know, Jared, we certainly do that work with clients. It's not that we don't do that, but I just think that that's a really first grade elementary item. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that you could go to Betterment or Wealthfront or a robo advisor somewhere online, and there's plenty of tools that can do that for you. It's just not hard analysis. You don't need, I mean, you don't, you don't even need a CFP to run that analysis for you. But the second reason it's something that you should you you should certainly get and it should be the beginning of what you get in our niche about 90 percent of our clients are retiring from large oil and gas companies so in that niche in that group of people that is a really low bar for financial planning because a lot of people in our niche have more assets than what you're probably going to spend and so if you're entering retirement and you have $4 million, $5 million, and you're only spending $10,000 a month, there's not a whole lot of value in somebody giving you a book that says that, hey, congratulations, you are able to retire. Because I can tell you right now, if, if, if those are your assets, if you just stay away from huge investment mistakes, you're going to be fine. That's not a complicated financial question to answer. So there needs to be significantly more value above and beyond that. The value proposition should not just be can I properly manage assets? Uh, so that was 2000. Well, guess what? Vanguard can do an incredible job of that. And they're only going to charge you 35 basis points, 0.35%. So if that's the measure, well, Vanguard's really good. If the measure is financial planning, that is a, a book that maps out where your cash flow is going to come from, you can get that online for a really low price as well. So I think the value proposition needs to go above and beyond, and it needs to answer questions like, is my estate plan organized? Uh, do my family members know where uh, critical documents are located? Do my family members understand the tax ramifications of inheriting an IRA and what the IRS requirements are to inherit an IRA? Do I have a plan to lower my lifetime tax rate from my IRA assets? If you have brokerage assets, do you have a plan to maximize the 0% capital gains tax window? Is there a plan to bunch property taxes, charitable contributions, and maximize your itemized versus standard deduction over the coming decade? Is asset location happening? Do you have growth assets in HSA accounts and Roth accounts and less growth in IRA assets that are going to be exposed to future tax rates? So there's so many different things that financial planning can include that really can provide massive value, but a lot of those are proactive items. And it's not something where you shouldn't have to ask your advisor or remind them um, on the front end about those things. Yeah, and asking for the information needed for that, it's like you should have an advisor who's naturally curious, asking to see your tax return, asking for brokerage statements, asking for your insurance documents, helping you try to centralize and consolidate everything. If they only want investment accounts and, and aren't wanting to understand how these things relate to the tax implications or your family's liability and potential insurance gaps and things like that, if they're not seeing how all of these parts are connected, they're not really interested in, in the whole picture and fully serving you just you know, dealing with this one part of your life and kind of continuing to react to the questions you ask, which isn't bad, but just we would say, we would say incomplete. And kind of related to this financial planning idea is this really important understanding of, we'll call this uh, 
who is at the center of the financial plan or who is the hero? So as you are looking at various advisors, you think to yourself, why, why do you like them? What do you like about them? How much did they ask about me? Am I at the center of the financial plan or are they? Are the things you like about them, the strategies they proposed, or did they listen or do you understand or do they understand you and what you're trying to accomplish? Because that really is what financial planning is. Considering the finances to optimize for life and not the other way around. If somebody doesn't know you and who you are and what you want out of life, they may recommend the financially optimal thing, but it's not the life optimal thing. Let me give you an example of that. If you're in your mid fifties and you may be starting a business in the next few years and all of your money is in a 401k account, you don't really have any assets that you can tap penalty free for, for some startup capital to, to start a business, right? If your advisor knows that, Hey, you may want to start a business. They may recommend you, you dial back your 401k contribution a little bit to build up the assets that are, that are available and more liquid to, to fund, you know, that runway for startup expenses, right? But if an advisor just says, hey, 401k max makes the most sense, positions you better for life 20, 30 years from now, they may gloss over that. So is your vetting advisors, how much do they know about you in your situation? And are you at the center of it? And Justin, you can probably talk about this a little little more than I can because you've had more sales-centric jobs. And I'm curious how that like philosophy infiltrates the planning conversation or- I, I use planning in air quotes. Who's at the center of the conversation when it's when it's sales centric, and how does that kind of play out in product sales? Yeah, that's a really relevant question for the financial advisor uh, space. Um, I think I covered this. Was this our first podcast where I gave a little bit of a history about where both you and I uh, came from and and stuff? And the core of it was when I entered the industry, when I went into the financial planning space, uh, the jobs that are available at an entry level, and you know, this is a decade ago, 20 years ago, this was true. And, and I would say it's getting better now, but the jobs that were available were all sales jobs. Uh, so there's actually a lot of jokes online about uh, like, if you, be, if you become a financial advisor right after college, it's an interview where they basically ask you, uh, so how many friends and family do you have? Can you write a, write a list of, of the 50 people you're closest to in this world? And uh, that's, that's the interview. And if you can do that, you get the job because they want you to go sell to those people. So the basic environment of a brokerage investment firm or an insurance company, it's, it's all sales centric. And I think, uh, Jared, I want to say, is all of your experience at fee only uh, fiduciary firms? That's incredible. And that, I mean, that is such an advantage um, to have that experience. But uh, in the sales space, so the brokerage, and th- this is most nationwide investment firms that you've, that you've heard of, that you see commercials for, all of the conferences, all of the advisor training, it's how to sell specific products from that company. And so I love, I love what did you call this point? Who's the hero? Yeah. So I think when you're evaluating financial advisors, ask that question, who is the hero? Is it an incredible product that the advisor was trying to explain why the merits and why the uh, just all the different aspects of this investment are so excellent? Uh, is it an investment product? Is it an annuity? Is it a life insurance policy? Is that the hero or is the hero you? And financial planning is a lot more interesting. It's also a lot more difficult when you are the hero. 
it's easy to explain in a really salesy way, well, this mutual fund is the most special mutual fund in the world, or this insurance policy, this annuity is just so incredible. And this is why you need to um, include this and you need to buy this because it's essentially a commercial and the product that they're selling is the hero. And they're trying to convince you of that so that you put your money in it. But we, we want to take a different approach. And I think when you're evaluating advisors, this should be something that's that's on your radar. Am I the hero here? Does it start with me? I think another way to ask this is if this was, if I got to, if you got to be a fly on the wall of their next 10 meetings, would the next 10 meetings with 10 other people, would they look almost the exact same? Uh, would they cover the same products? Would they, would they do the same analogies and metaphors to build up those products? Or would it be 10 completely different different meetings with different plans and strategies? Because every person, every family is in a different situation. I think it's a, I think it's a good question to ask. Yeah, definitely. And another great question to ask to learn if their investment strategy or if you are at the center, what are the capital gains associated with this transition and why do they make sense for me? One of the things that that we've seen in the industry is- Wait, Jared, I thought you were just supposed to blow up a portfolio and put it in a canned package of, of mutual funds. That is, you know, that is the operationally easier thing. Um, if you're listening to this, I'm smiling with a tremendous amount of sarcasm. Yeah. So that's something that, that we've seen in the industry. Going back to a lot of our clients, they have oil and gas positions or- you know, their long-term investors have a lot of equities or mutual funds or ETFs with large embedded gains. So one of the things that, that we do as a firm is we we look and we're very sensitive. And, and there's a few questions we ask is, okay, how close are these exposures to the target exposures we would like to hold? What are the embedded capital gains and what is their capital gains rate now and in the future? And, you know, if you think about that as a Venn diagram, where all those things kind of intersect and there's a lot of synergy, that's a good capital gains sensitive, conscious implementation plan. If an advisor just, you know, doesn't care, doesn't want to know about your situation or really care about the capital gains because you're going to be paying them anyway and just blows you out of a portfolio and sells the Vanguard S&P index fund to buy the iShares index fund because it's easier in their on their software, you know, you lose in that scenario. That's a great, just a simple example tactically to make sure, you know, you're on the same page and that they're seeking to understand everything and that and that they're being considerate of, of you and your situation and the potential tax consequences. But one of the things that we see a lot that people are recommending, they either ignore it completely or just move right out of it and not care about the tax consequences because the advisor is not having to pay them. That's such an incredible point. Every tax return is is unique and different and understanding it takes time. It takes attention to detail. And because of that, you need to make sure that that you're working with an advisor that if they're going to take your existing portfolio and get rid of all of your existing positions so that they can buy their positions. I mean, the question that you keep coming back to is why? Why are your positions better than mine? Why do you want to sell my positions now? Why don't you want to sell my positions over a five-year period and slowly get into yours? Uh, Remember, capital gains tax brackets are unique and different than income tax brackets. So if you have 
say 220,000 in income and, and you're married filing joint, well, you've got 30,000 up until you trigger a net investment income tax, an additional 3.8% on capital gains. And so why would someone blow up your entire portfolio instead of slowly merging into a new portfolio? So you, you just keep coming back to why, why, why is the star of the show, their ability to pick investments, their ability to pick stocks or a certain mutual fund or a certain certain insurance product, or are you the star of the show? And is everything optimized for your portfolio, your tax bill, and maximizing your retirement income, which I just listed a bunch of financial things to optimize for your life? Jared, I love that that point you made in the beginning. I mean, just thinking through some of the questions that help determine what is my optimal life scenario? I mean, sometimes it is the optimal financial scenario. Sometimes it's not. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you know, when you get to the point of identifying who's the hero and you find an advisor, go all in on them. Because one of the things we see that's a big mistake people make when hiring an advisor is they hedge their bets. And we'll call it the diversification, the advisor diversification fallacy. So they meet a couple different advisors and they're not sure who they want to go with uh, or don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. So they'll put a little bit with this person, a little bit with this person and have this and a little bit with another person. So they, so it feels diversified because they're kind of doing three different things. But the problem is, is there's no coordination. No one knows what the other's doing. And I bet if you looked under the hood of all those portfolios, they're pretty similar. And you may have actually much more concentrated exposures than you planned on because no one knows what's going on and what's at the center of it. And then, you know, an advisor can't thoughtfully advise on all of these components of of the financial planning process and life optimize if they if they can only see part of your situation, right? It's the equivalent of a doctor, like a holistic care doctor who can only only do x-rays, right? They can't do blood work. They can't do any exercises or any other types of check-ins. That's another fallacy we see people make is just you know, going across multiple advisors and not building any meaningful relationships with with any of them that are coordinated and holistic. So, you know, you you have to you do the due diligence, identify, okay, who's the hero? Is this person going to be proactive? Are they giving me any ideas I didn't think of myself? And then once you find that person, go all in on them so they can do their best work for you. A really important topic with that. I think you mentioned two reasons why you don't want to have four different advisors. One of them is there's not going to be coordination. You're going to miss out on on specific planning items. If we're working with a family who has three other advisors, how in the world would we re- would we recommend how much in a Roth conversion to do that year? How would we recommend whether to store dividend paying stocks in a taxable account or in a retirement account? We don't know what other capital gains are going to be produced. We don't know if other dividends are going to be ordinary dividends or qualified dividends. We don't know if there's other charitable giving going on. And so I I think one thing you mentioned is the downsides of you miss out on some really advanced planning when you do that. But the second thing is just it's not diversification. You're not diversified at all. Jared, how many mutual funds are there in the world today? Are there more mutual funds uh, and ETFs than individual securities? I, there's thousands. I think there's tens of thousands. 
That's an incredible point. I want to say there's around there's more than 10,000, which I do believe is more than the amount of publicly traded companies in the world today. I want to say there's eight or 9,000 public, publicly traded companies. So my point being, if there's, let's just say there's 10,000 mutual funds, which is in the ballpark. So 10,000 mutual funds, what people don't understand is an incredible number of those 10,000 are really similar. So you think that, well, I have diversification. I have an advisor at Vanguard. I've got an advisor at Merrill Lynch, and I've got an advisor at Raymond James. And what you don't understand is, yes, there may be three different portfolios, but those portfolios are probably exactly the same. And in fact, there's a good chance that it's even worse than that because most advisors, most investment firms will give you a diversified portfolio, some small cap, some international, but there's a heavy number of advisors in the US that will invest your money 100% in US large caps. They will pick 50 dividend paying US blue chip stocks. And so you actually have a pretty high chance of, of being less diversified. You're going to have an incredible concentration in U.S. large companies, which has been good for the last 10 years. It was unbelievably, just unimaginably bad from 2000 to 2009. And that could absolutely repeat itself. So simply put, that, that's not diversification in any way, shape or form. Yeah. You really have to know what the underlying funds are exposed to. Think about this. A one- ETF investor can be more diversified than someone with 150 tickers across three different advisors, like emphatically, right? Like it's just, there's so much That's an more amazing than, point. Than meets Repeat that again. Right? So like you can own one ETF that's globally diversified across, you know, global asset classes. One product can be more diversified than three advisors, each with 50 different funds especially because a lot of them have overlapping exposures. And there's fun softwares where you can actually plug in all those to see your actual percentages and allocations and how much, how different or or similar they are. I've, I've coined this idea, mutual fund soup, where it's just like a bunch of different stuff and it feels like it's a lot and it's diversified. But if you look under the hood, the top 10 holdings are nearly identical for all of those positions. So why are you, you know, why are you owning something if it's just a, pretty much the same version of something else? It's optics, I think. That's right. That's that's really good. So we talked about, you know, some of the identifying, okay, who's the hero? Does value exceed the cost? Proactive versus reactive. So we've talked about some of the shortfall, shortcomings, pitfalls, mistakes. Let's spin it and kind of close it out on a positive note. What are some things that lead to a successful and enduring advisory relationships? Like how do you how do you get the most out of that and what is what does that look like? All right. So I think, uh, and and we could even label this something about how do you know whether you're in a good marriage or a bad marriage with a with an advisor? And um, I think the first thing is, are you aligned and going in a somewhat similar direction? Uh, and what I mean is philosophically. And so I think I even mentioned this on the last article that I wrote that if you are adamant that you only own U.S. stocks, um, if, if that's just something that you are, you have to have only U.S. stocks, we may not be a great fit because we firmly believe that you need to be globally diversified. And we've seen decades where the U.S. has done really poorly and there's no guarantee that they won't repeat themselves. So that would be a philosophical difference. Jared, did we do market timing when that podcast was pretty recent? Uh, that's probably the greatest example. Yeah. Well, yeah. Should I pull all of my money out? 
And what we would say is, you know, absolutely not. And you go back and listen to the market timing podcast as to why we think that is and why there's a big body of research that suggests that's probably not a good thing. Uh, Some people will come to us and ask for that. Or can you pick buy and sell individual stocks, right? And that kind of alludes to the investment manifesto that talks about performance attribution and what small percentage of companies drive a lot of the investment returns. So those are some examples of core tenants that we have that we hope, and maybe somebody's not there, but they're open to being there. So we, we'd have conversations about that. But you know, if, if you disagree about how market works or, or what you think the role of an advisor is, right? Is it to provide advanced planning ideas and look at your situation and provide recommendations and optimize for taxes and all that things? Or is it to pick stocks, right? If Those are two different things you're asking for. And so depending on which of those you want, it determines what type of advisor you'd look for. So yeah, Justin, you're exactly right. Looking for somebody who is running in the same direction and offering what you are looking for. That's a great way to phrase it. If two people are not in somewhat of an agreement and they're not going in the same direction, it's probably not going to work out very well. And it's it's not that you have to agree on everything. It's not as if we make every client sign a, some sort of you know list of convictions that they agree with. It, it's okay to have some different thoughts and opinions, but there needs to at least not be massive stark differences where you have an expectation that your advisor is timing the market and getting out before market crashes or some other really specific investment strategy if your advisor is just not doing that. There needs to be some sort of agreement philosophically. Now, I think we've uh, waited uh, to include this toward the end, and in part of that is because we've written so much content on this topic. But another part about just having a good relationship that endures long-term with an advisor is cost and whether or not they are fee only and have a legal obligation to be a fiduciary at all times. I think that would be a good point to make sure we cover here at the end as well. Yeah. And, and I would add to be crystal clear on cost, we're, uh, I feel like we talk about cost a lot, so we're not going to spend too much time here, but total cost in dollars. And there's kind of two large components. There's smaller ones like trade fees, but we won't focus on those. The two big ones are, okay, what is the fee that I'm paying my advisor in a dollar amount on an annual basis? Percentage points just kind of obfuscate things and make it feel like a more digestible. Yeah. So what what if I have $4 million and I'm being charged 0.9%? Yeah. That's $36,000 a year, right? I had I had to do the math, but 0.9% sounds so reasonable, but $36,000 a year, that's a new vehicle every single year. But on top of that, that's that's one component of the fee and the underlying expense ratios of the funds that they are investing in, you will also pay. So if you're paying an advisor 1% and then another 50 50 basis points, so 0.5%, that's 1.5% of your portfolio every year that's leaving and being sent to mutual fund companies or to your advisors. And percentages feel much more digestible. So for that same analogy that Justin just used of the 1.5% total cost on a $4 million portfolio, that is $60,000 a year. So, you know, when you think about the total cost, think about it in dollar terms. And then also think about the in total advisor fee just being one piece of that. Let's break that down real quick. So great analogy. If you have $4 million, maybe an advisor gives you a little bit lower fee. So they might charge you 0.9% instead of 1%. So that's $36,000 right there. But Jared, you just mentioned 
that their portfolio is full of funds and those funds have fees embedded in them. And those aren't necessarily going to your advisor specifically, but those funds are still there and have a material impact on your future returns. So if those, did you mention 0.5% in your example? Yeah. Just nice round math. So 0.5% on on 4 million, that's another $20,000. So even if you got a little bit of a price break on the advisor fee, so maybe you're paying thirty-two dollars or $36,000 plus you're paying another 20,000. So now we are in the 55 to $60,000 every single year, 10 years from now you will have paid over $500,000 in total investment fees. That is an incredible number that you need to you need to certainly take to heart. So again, when you're looking at advisors, it's not a question of what do they charge and what is the cost. It is what is the actual dollar amount per year. So it's not 0.9%, it's $36,000 a year. It's not, oh, the underlying fees are 0.5%. It's That's another 20000 a year. Uh, now, this ties in perfectly to our next question. Uh, Jared, 0.5%, that's actually a pretty, uh, uh, that's somewhat on the low end of what advisors would charge. So common to see 05 to 0.8% as an average expense ratio on funds. Now, it's easy to build a portfolio with 0.2% as the expense ratio across the entire portfolio. Why in the world would an investment firm have underlying expense ratios that would go above 0.5%? Bunch of different reasons, right? Gets back to incentives. Sometimes advisors will get kickbacks for recommending these products. And sometimes they'll pick active managers. So if you're not following a benchmark or have a quantitative method and you're employing people to research companies full-time, that you know that is more expensive and those expenses are passed on to you. Those are kind of two of the two of the big reasons why. But we're hawks, and to change it, fifty basis points can, like Justin said, can be a deal if it's inclusive of financial planning and investment management. And then the expense ratios are a small a number beyond that. But 05 percent for just investment management and no proactive planning that that could be a ripoff. So while you should understand total cost, also think about what you're getting for the cost incurred, right? And some of the questions that we asked earlier, because you know, don't be so much cost focused as you are value focused and kind of just understanding the value and what you are getting in exchange for the total cost of what you're paying. That's a great point. And I I do want to hit on something that you said at the very beginning of that, that uh, the reasons why a firm would have expense ratios in your portfolio 0.5% is because their investment firm is getting kickbacks from other firms. So that means they are not fee only, or it means they are a hybrid firm. So the vast majority of nationwide firms that you've heard of, that you see commercials for, they are not fee only firms. And so what that means is they can, at the same time, they can be a registered investment advisor and say, yes, we are fiduciaries. But then in that same conversation, they are duly registered so they can be a broker and sell you specific products with a commission attached or in that managed account. They can farm out the funds in the accounts they manage to other companies who pay them kickbacks to be included in their funds. So the reason why your underlying expense ratio might be 0.5 or 0.6 when you can build, I mean, I think there's a lot of academic defense behind this statement. You can build a better portfolio with lower expense ratios. But the reason why your expense ratios are higher is because your firm is not fee only. And they're receiving kickbacks. They're receiving commissions by putting more expensive funds in your portfolio. And 
kind of the the final point talking about a good relationship is like, are they naturally suited to serve me? Do they understand what I think about and how I work and the intricacies of my situation? I would say if an advisor says, hey, we specialize in widows, retirees, small business owners, medical professionals, graduate students. If they specialize in everyone, it's really code for we specialize in no one. And so they're not going to know the intricacies of your situation. You cannot be all things to all people. So the wider their net is, the less specialized they are in you and what you're doing. So figure out exactly who you are and what you're doing and try to find a firm that's well-suited for that because they will really know you and what you need. And that's why we've made a strategic decision to go kind of with a laser focused in in one demographic, oil and gas retirees, because we feel like we know them and we can best serve them. And and we get people all the time who don't necessarily fit into that. And they kind of self-select or we'll refer them out to to friends in the profession. But that's another important thing to think about is how well do they know me and how are they positioned to serve me both now and in the future? That's great. And uh, check the show notes. Uh, we can link to some uh, some really good resources. Uh, Jason Zweig of the Wall Street Journal has a really good article. I think it's called, uh, is it the 17 questions to ask any financial professional? So it's really helpful to just sort through this. But when you're looking for financial advice, it's important to understand just is, is there a proactive planning or is it all reactive? Uh, what type of value are you getting? And is it a situation where you're the hero, you're the star of the show, you're in the center, or is it products that are are being sold to you? Um, and so hopefully this is really helpful as you uh, enter around that journey of finding excellent advice. And um, yeah, I think this is a great topic and one that we'll continue to cover. Thanks. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.